Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. In this episode, I speak with feminist and writer Genevieve Gluck. Genevieve details her research into castration fetishes and puberty blockers, adult male force feminization, encourages castration and humiliation, and reinforces the view that women are castrated, failed, or incompetent men. Genevieve points out that it is the appropriation of human female bodies and women's oppression as a fetish. Genevieve has discovered that what ultimately results is a feedback loop of men and boys consuming dysmorphic pornography, only then to become the pornography by advertising their feminized bodies. So this feeds the push for puberty blockers, like the notorious Lupron, being given to children who by at at that point are groomed to be sexualized and confused. Meanwhile, girls specifically seek to escape their sex-based oppression by becoming medicalized and mutilated into manhood. If you haven't listened to my first interview with Genevieve, The Truth About Hypnosissy Porn, I would definitely recommend listening to that before this episode. Hypnosissy Porn episode definitely lays the groundwork for what we discuss uh, in this episode. And similar to the Hypnosissy Porn episode we did, um, Genevieve provided a lot of visual aids. So if you would like to listen to this episode with the visual aids, I would recommend heading over to my YouTube channel for that. So this is your warning that uh, this episode contains explicit information. Please be mindful of who is in the room when you are listening or watching this episode. Genevieve and I were just talking about the last time we recorded. Um, It's been a decent number of months at this point. And uh, Genevieve's presentation on the truth about hypnosis porn now has, I think, close to 20,000 views. since I published that, I have received dozens of emails from men telling their stories, mostly pleading for help. Um, pretty, pretty shocking how yeah, deeply it resonated with so many men and how many men are struggling with this experience. I know it's uh, debatable whether, you know, we see these men as addicts or willing participants um, and where the agency is and all this. It's an interesting thing to, to talk about and a whole nother tangent, but um, I just went on to my channel to see how long ago we spoke and I got a notification, uh, from YouTube that I had a new comment. Um, also YouTube has been deleting comments at lightning speed, but anytime someone leaves a comment, I get a notification in my email. So whether the comment lives for one second or a year, it is archived 
in my inbox, which is pretty interesting. So an anonymous user left this comment just now. Quote, have any of you girls ever considered military service? I'm just curious. I don't think you ladies have the vaguest idea what you're up against. Sissy hypnosis draws its power from your resistance, and resistance is futile. They did it to me, and they're going to do it to you. I'm now an effeminate, flamboyant, promiscuous homosexual. I dress like a woman. As for the objects with vaginas we once knew as women, I'm sure our masters will find something for you to do. Good luck. So whoever this anonymous user is and those alike, they really don't like that you are researching and archiving this material and that we are exposing it, right? There's something infuriating about this material being brought to light. I've gotten some messages too, but most of them, well, I've only gotten a few. So um, they've been asking for help, um, which like, I don't really know what to say to that because in the first place, like I said last time, I'm not a counselor. So that wouldn't be something I would begin to do because I, I'm just really unqualified for that. But also say, I told you this happened or I noticed it had happened about a month ago that somebody had taken audio of our conversation where I was reading from one of the manuals uh, from Amazon and they'd uploaded it as sissy porn. So they took my voice and then put the kind of background hum behind it and then made these like this description about how my true intention was to actually hypnotize people and my name has now been picked up by a youtube algorithm so uh pornography comes up with my name now so i'm probably expecting worse than that i mean what what can I do, you know, like the things I'm gonna talk about today are a little bit, I think, more disturbing than what I touched on last time, which I wanna clarify too. Last time I, I was holding back like a lot, actually. Part of the problem with this issue is that there's so many kinds of like genres and various mediums that it's put through and then there are all these different kinks that are associated with it. Of course they say kinks, but technically paraphilias. So um, some of what I'm talking about today is related to that. And there are some things I'll be showing that might be disturbing to some people. So keep that in mind. Of course, this is for a more mature audience. I'm looking at the castration fetish or you know, when I use that word, I'm using it a bit more loosely than actual surgical castration. So emasculation, humiliation, and castration fetishes kind of rolled into one. And how that plays into a kind of construction of 
a transgender child uh, and the fact that children are being used to normalize these types of adult ideas about sexuality. So with that said, I'll just go into it. Okay, so this is called pornography, paraphilias, and puberty blockers, which I've put in quotation marks because the term puberty blockers, as I will explain, is really just a euphemism for drugs that have many other purposes and weren't in fact designed to be used in this manner. So my three main points that I'm looking at are the origin of theorizing about a gender identity, which is rooted in adult sexuality, pornography, and child medical and sexual abuse. Uh, I'll be looking at one example of a researcher in this area named John Money, who, as I'll explain, is one of the originators of these types of ideas. Uh, my second idea is that children are being used as pawns to normalize adult male sexual paraphilias, and children and teens are being medically castrated as a result. And then finally, women are being redefined as castrated males, a concept which is promoted in BDSM practices and pornography. So first I'm going to look at a book by John Colopinto, who is a Canadian journalist, author, and staff writer at The New Yorker. He wrote this book, As Nature Made Him, in 2000, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list. So just 20 years ago, this was in the public consciousness, uh, already has been sort of removed from mainstream consciousness. And it's the story of a boy named David Reimer, who, as I'll explain, was one of the first victims of sex reassignment surgery. So David was born in 1966. And as an infant, his circumcision was botched. So this allowed for the psychologist John Money to experiment on him. And he decided it would be better to raise Reimer as a girl. So he believed that sex was socially constructed, which is a belief also promoted by current trans activists, notably uh, Chase Strangio from ACLU. And Reimer's case represents one of the earliest modern examples of what is called sex reassignment surgery. And significantly, John Money forced David to imitate sex acts with his twin brother, Brian, instructing David to play the submissive or female role. Money justified these criminal acts by claiming that childhood sexual rehearsal play was important for de developing a healthy adult gender identity. The sexual abuse, abuses inflicted on the twins by John Money caused them such severe stress that both of the boys committed suicide in adulthood. This is a quote from the book, As Nature Made Him, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Girl. While attempting to probe the twins' sexual psyches, Money also tried his hand at programming Brenda and Brian's respective sense of themselves as girl and boy. One of his theories of how children form their different gender schemas was that they must understand at a very early age the differences between male and female sex organs. Pornography, he believed, was ideal for this purpose. Explicit sexual pictures, he wrote in his book, Sexual Signatures, can and should be used as part of a child's sex education. Uh, this is continuing on, still quoting from the book. Such pictures, he said, reinforce his or her own gender identity or role. 
referring to pornography. He would show us pictures of kids, boys and girls with no clothes on, Brian says. David recalls that Dr. Money also showed them pictures of adults engaged in sexual intercourse. He'd say to us, I want to show you pictures of things that mom and dads do. Lenny had two sides to his personality, according to the twins. One when mom and dad weren't around and another when they were there. Alone with the children, he could be irritable or worse, especially when they defied him. They were particularly resistant, the twins say, to Money's requests that they remove their clothes and inspect each other's genitals. David recalls an occasion when he attempted to defy the psychologist. He told me to take my clothes off, David says, just did not do it. I just stood there and he screamed now. Louder than that, I thought he was going to give me a whooping. So I took my clothes off and stood there shaking. Though the children could not know this, the genital inspections that Dr. Money demanded they perform were central to his theory of how children develop a sense of themselves as boy or girl. And thus, in Money's mind, crucial to the successful outcome of Brenda, that's David's, sex reassignment. For as Money stressed in his writings of the period, quote, the firmest possible foundations for gender schemas are the differences between male and female genitals and reproductive behavior a foundation our culture strives mightily to withhold from children. All young primates explore their own and each other's genitals, masturbate and play at thrusting movements and copulation. And that includes human children everywhere as well as subhuman primates. The only thing wrong about these activities is not to enjoy them. But the children did not enjoy these enforced activities, particularly those involving play at thrusting movements and copulation, which Brian recalls that Dr. Money first introduced when the twins were six years old. John Money's theory of childhood sexual rehearsal play was articulated repeatedly in books, papers, speeches, and press interviews published over a quarter of a century, and it was of supposed critical importance in the establishment of a healthy gender identity. He also, by the way, would sometimes photograph the children doing these things. So that's the end of the quote from the book. Um, these are my comments now. We can recognize within the work of John Money, homophobia, pedophilia, medical experimentation, and the underlying notion of the female as a castrated male. We appear to have not learned much from this tragedy. Gender ideology continues to promote womanhood to this day but has been expanded to allow for a more symbolic sort of castration, including chemical castration, by asserting that surgery is not necessary for a man to claim womanhood. It has become generally accepted that a man can be legally identified as a woman, as long as he performs femininity at least part-time and or self-castrates by means of adopting a feminine role or taking hormones. So I'm looking now at what's called the castration paraphilia or castration fetish, beginning with a quote from the academic Andrea Longchu, who I referenced in our last video, but um, Andrea Longchu is uh, an academic who has presented their ideas at many reputable universities. So this quote is from the essay which he also presented as a speech at other universities titled, Did Sissy Porn Make Me Trans? Quote, castration anxiety is easily mistaken for the fear that one will be castrated. In fact, it is the fear that one being castrated will like it. 
The threat, in other words, is not that you will lose power, this is basically inevitable and not much worth worrying about, but that you won't actually want power after all. Too often we imagine powerlessness as the suppression of desire by some external force, maybe someone else's desire, and we forget that desire in itself is often, if not always, an experience of powerlessness. Most desire is non-consensual. Most desires aren't desired. So a technical term for what I referred to as the castration paraphilia is called the scoptic syndrome. This comes from Wikipedia. Scoptic syndrome is a condition in which a person is preoccupied with or engages in genital self-mutilation, such as castration, penectomy, or clitoridectomy. Uh, this is also part of the definition of gender dysphoria that was found in the DSM-4. Uh, when the DSM was updated, I believe it was removed. Uh, otherwise, the reference here would be the DSM-5, the most recent one. Scoptic syndrome can sometimes be motivated by intense sexual guilt in which the genitals become identified as the source of the guilt-inducing sexual desire. There's also evidence that voluntary castration is used in modern societies for reasons such as control of libido, body modification, and in cases of extreme sexual masochism for purposes of sexual excitement. And by the way, masochism is the M in BDSM. Finally, down here at the bottom, where it's giving some of the supposed advantages of castration, such as you know, maintaining violent behavior or preventing an overactive libido. It also goes on to say that some men seek relief from physical or psychological problems, while others derive sexual excitement from the idea of being castrated or having their genitals mutilated, usually by another person, again, masochism and paraphilia. This desire is still present in modern populations as evidenced in the large membership and message boards on the internet related to the topic. So that was also a topic that I looked at in my last presentation, the prevalence of these forums where these types of paraphilias are being promoted. The term Skoptic comes from the Skoptsi, which is a eunuch sect that reached its height in the early 20th century in Russia. They were a spiritual Christian movement, and they're best known for castration of men and the double mastectomies of women in accordance with their teachings against sexuality. They considered these to be rites of passage to reach a holy or a divine state. These are some examples of the proliferation of this fetish on Reddit. Again, as I mentioned before, these can be found easily online. It doesn't take long to find them. There are also, these types of videos are also present in pornography, especially transgender pornography as well. So the first one says, I think I'm FTF trans, five years on HRT. I'm turned on by the thought of being castrated. This makes me worry I'm pursuing bottom surgery just because I'm a self-loathing male. The other one has a similar uh, similar idea to it. Uh, they're asking for advice on how to get castrated. This is in the subreddit Ask Docs. 
18 MTF, I'm considering getting castrated. How much would it cost? Will I lose my sex drive? This is a big question that's often asked and uh, the answer tends to be no, not really. Um, it does diminish, but rather than an erectile orgasm, they might have say, for example, a prostate orgasm instead. So some of the anecdotal reasons for castration using SRS or hormones. So prevent hair loss. Some men will say that they uh, want to improve their skin uh, to get what they call girl skin. Um, increase of breast size comes more from actually from the uh, SRS, from the surgery itself, since it also allows them to decrease anti-androgens so their body wouldn't be producing you know testosterone anymore so it means that they can take fewer medications and as this person here says that you can see in the example that it helps to increase their breast size um, and of course becoming physically weaker or emasculation is purported to be another benefit for doing this uh, this is just the end of that person's comment about talking about their breast size, uh, encouraging the person who asked the question to go ahead, don't wait, go for it. Keep the scrotum and penis, but get castrated. It's so interesting when I, when I read this comment, you know, talking about the fake breasts and which bras to buy and how to pad your bras and like, uh, like the fetishizing around bras and underwire and like, it is so specific to men, you know, it's, it's laughable, right? Like any woman who is on the path to, well, I would say on the path to wellness and health consciousness and breast health, optimal breast health has probably at some point heard, or if you haven't, maybe you're just now learning that wearing underwire bras is not optimal for breast health. It interferes with the breast tissue. They have a, their own cycle. Like our, our breasts are, are intelligent and they do not thrive being contorted and confined. Now that's not necessarily all bras, but we're talking about underwire bras. I mean, it's just like, it's just, it's so glaringly obvious <laughs> that these are men with fake fucking appendages. Mm -hmm. And like the fetishizing of like the advice giving, like trying yeah. to be like two gals talking about their bras. It's like, dude, we're beyond that. We're beyond that. Women are working to release harmful, painful, patriarchal practices, ritualistic, mutilating practices. It just, yeah, that this that that really just stood out to me. And it, often women might try to hide their breasts actually because they don't want to be perceived or sexualized in a certain way. Um, you're going to laugh, but actually I've seen comments uh, on this topic of men giving advice to each other about breast growth. So one guy asked if his breasts would grow in the 
in the shape of whatever bra he chose. So if he should choose a more round shaped cup, if he wanted his breasts to grow more round. Oh this was a serious God. question, I think. I mean, it's hard oh. to tell sometimes on these forums, like who's being serious and who isn't, but I mean, they're anonymous. So a lot of what they say, I consider to be at least partially true. That's really sad. Wow. So what else does he say? Currently, I like to go without a bra and oh my God, they are huge. I wear a Lycra style athletic shirt that provides support, but it actually gives me an appearance that I have big pecs. Pecs? Okay. At least that's more like anatomically relevant to men. But yeah. I, what does he say? Tenu- but I can tell you for fact, the progesterone is the reason. All right. right. Wow. So he w- this guy wishes he had been castrated at 18. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's related to, I think the commenter there said they were 18. Mm. So. Oh, so he's like, do it. He's like, bro, do it. I wish I had done it younger. Yeah. yeah. Wow. This next image here, it comes from a website called sissify.com, a subscription-based BDSM erotica website. And it's been running for over 20 years now, I think 23 years, they brag about it on the website. But the content, in addition to including um, pornographic materials and erotica stories, um, also gives information on both DIY and medical grade hormones. Uh, This is from that website page where you can see the image of the woman here in all pink latex and she is holding an IV drip fluid of pink liquid. And the caption says, is it time for your girl juice? It looks like uh, (laughs) a Pepto-Bismol. Somebody else said that to me too. Which, unfortunately, I've been looking at so much of this kind of fetish stuff that even you don't want to know where my brain went. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, So this is the castration information on sissify.com. So a surgical castration. It has a couple of names. In the U.S., I believe it's referred to as an orchiectomy. In the UK, it's an orchidectomy, but same thing. Um, So it's the surgical procedure to remove one or both testicles. I don't know the names for all of the types of surgeries they have now. They've got a few different types now where uh, one of the popular things that people ask about is, you know, if they could have both the, the penis and the vagina. But anyway, so this is just describing the orchiectomy. I do some sissies get orchidomies. Uh, MTF transsexuals, as well as transgendered people, sometimes undergo orchidectomy. It can be done before or instead of SRS. This is an option for those that either can't afford or don't want to have SRS. And it says the benefits for sissies are ability to stop taking antiandrogens and reduce estrogen. Uh, increased health, save money, 
might be able to legally change sex. Easier to tuck. Number six, taken more seriously by society. Pay note to that. I just saw that and thought, you know, what is it that you're, you're taking more seriously? What, are, what is society taking seriously here? Uh, increased body image, faster feminization, no longer have testicular pain with tucking. And lastly, never a detransition, even if you can't take medication. Who else gets orchiectomies? The website asks. Well, some men seek this procedure uh, in order to fulfill a fetish or fantasy. The most common reason for control of sexuality is also a part of rehabilitation for sex offenders. So now I'm moving into the drugs called puberty blockers with a special focus on this one, Luproralin, which is the main drug used in the US. Uh, I'm not certain about other countries, maybe Europe might use a different uh, form of this type of drug, but this is the most popular in the US. So it's the hormone used to treat prostate cancer, breast cancer, endometriosis, uterine fibroids, and early puberty, which is sometimes called precocious puberty, or as a part of transgender hormone therapy. And it's given as injection commonly. So this is now from the Wikipedia page on chemical castration, uh, where it defines what it is. You know, chemical castration is used on convicted sex offenders in exchange for reduced sentences. And again, this is from the uh, Luproralin Wikipedia, where it says now here, it's a possible treatment for paraphilias. Luproralin has been tested as a treatment for reducing sexual urges in pedophiles. And this, so the reason I'm going back and forth like this is it doesn't really sync up on the the website on the wiki website for Lupron, you have to kind of like go and look at the chemical castration entry as well, which here does name the drug as being the most commonly used in chemical castration today. This drug has been observed as having higher rates of success in reducing abnormal sexual urges and fantasies, but is often reserved for those offenders who are at high risk of reoffending due to the drug's intense effects. Okay, so it's not even used on every sex offender. Uh, it's only reserved for the most recidivist or dangerous sex offenders. This is research from, I wanna say, oh yeah, 2008. It's called A Passion for Castration, Characterizing or Fascinated with Castration but Have Not Been Castrated. A number of men have extreme castration ideations. Many only fantasize about castration while others actualize their fantasies. And some of the statistics here, the categories of wannabes, so the wannabes haven't yet gone through with it. Their interest in castration was sexually fetishistic in nature and 20% of the men appeared to be at great risk for genital mutilation within the group who are the fetishists. 
19% of all wannabes, again, wannabe referring to the fetish, have attempted self-castration. So when asked about the origin of their interest in castration, respondents could select more than a factor, but the majority of the wannabes selected sexual fantasy as their origin of interest. Within the wannabes, those who were either seriously researching or actively seeking castration were more likely to list reduction of libido as their origin of interest. And some of these men were asked about where they got this idea from. A number of them said that they got the idea online from looking at internet forums. And one of the motivators that they cited was BDSM related. So quote, ideas of becoming subservient were the most common among those who simply fantasized about castration. One respondent wrote of his desire for becoming it, a submissive guy without sex drive. More common was the slave metaphor. As a slave it would allow a greater focus on serving the pleasure of the master. So within the BDSM practices that involve castration, threat of castration or ideation, uh, sometimes you might find uh, the dom, dom referring to the dominant person involved brandishing something called an elastrator. An elastrator is an elastic castrator which places small rubber bands on the testicles of livestock. In addition, you have these devices called chastity cages, um, which are what, what the name says they are, and usually involve a lock and a key for purposes of gamifying the uh, humiliation. And the point here is the humiliation is exciting um, and emasculation, castration, and threat of castration. And they also do challenges uh, both in public and online. Again, it's not clear to what degree they are simply making up these stories of doing it in public or if they are actually doing it in public. However, I have recently seen some videos from Pornhub that really verify that they are actually doing this in public as well. Um, some really awful things of men going into women's public restrooms to film themselves masturbating and upload them online. Um, the online challenges tend to revolve around however many likes I get is how many hours I will spend locked up in a cage. So here I'm referring to chemical castration used by means of birth control. So this is uh, in addition, of course, to the progesterone, estradiol, or the SRFs, birth control might be used. Sometimes this can be used as a DIY method of reducing their, well, in effect, reducing their libido. But, you know, I really question how effective that seems to be given the pornography that I've seen. But anyway, um, here's some examples of uh, trans-identified males on social media bragging about their their prescriptions for either birth control or in this case you can see this person refers to their stack of hormones as bimbo pills this is not uncommon 
uh, it goes along with another related fetish, which is centered around trying to resemble a Barbie doll or a porn star. This keeps coming up for me, like just the obviousness of the fact that these are men with paraphilias, that they would appropriate a drug, take a drug, make it in, like make it a part of their fetish that has killed women. Like Yasmin is a fucking dangerous hormonal contraceptive that I personally had at least three clients who had, um, who suffered blood clots after taking this medication um, and who then suffered in their pregnancies and their births, you know, who will be on blood thinners for the rest of their lives. Right. So just this appropriation of like these underwire bras, which we know are not optimal for breast health, and then taking these hormonal contrac, which originally were used as hor- hormonal contraceptive and, and using it to, um, shrivel your pathetic dick as this, uh, sissy girls Academy account, um, has put it. So yeah, just, Wow. Wow. In the past, a common drug that would have been used for this was called Primarin, which literally comes from pregnant mare hormones. This actually was used commonly for women from suffering from like menopause symptoms, right? So it was a hormone to kind of decrease symptoms associated with that. But I mean, it was horses being tortured, you know, basically the female horses being tortured and then the the drug was distilled from the urine of pregnant horses who were just constantly made to be um, impregnated and that. So, I mean, there's, I mean, we could probably just for a whole episode go on about the harms of just the hormones itself in general. But, you know, of course, like you said, there's no consideration for any of that here. It's completely selfish and very narcissist, but I think that maybe paraphilias tend to do that to a person. So. Yeah. And also the, the, the immunity that, that this topic has within female health circles, right? I I was in spaces where we were openly critiquing the harms of hormonal birth control and the lack of informed consent. And, um, it was okay to critique that in that context, but as soon as you applied it to the trans stuff, it was like, Oh no, 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 no. You're not allowed to have judgment there. Right. It doesn't apply. Right. There's so much of that with this. Like they can do whatever they like, you know, don't kink shame. Right. You know, the, the people who are saying don't kink shame, who are doing this sort of thing are the same ones you, who will threaten women with death for over a pronoun. You know, so they're allowed to do all of these kinds of strange, unhealthy and dangerous sexual practices and not be criticized, but we're criticized at every turn. Everything that we say is scrutinized, analyzed, threatened. We get, as I'm sure that you've gotten threats as well, you know, just for talking about it. Absolutely. So another aspect of this kind of castration paraphilia is the idea that men who um, have what they would consider less than adequate size genitalia 
ought to be transitioned and will often refer to their genitals as a clitty. Um, and this one says that uh, should have been born a girl with a photo of a dick measuring stick. So the shortest line there saying you should have been a girl. So it's really, again, just reinforcing what I was saying before about the idea that uh, women are being defined in terms of failed masculinity uh, or incompetent men. I think all of those things apply here. This was a video I saw on Twitter of a man injecting estradiol as part of a fetish um, video. And this is a, this other image is a reference to BDSM. Uh, it all depends on how my master wants me to be and trains me to be his personal requirements. Love being a sissy, but would also be loved to be made into a bimbo slut and made to take female hormones. So within all of this, the concept of woman being reduced to a castrated male, eventually you get down to where it's womanhood itself being reduced to a fetish. More examples of post then their forums on Reddit, where this person says basically how it started out for them, right? So it started with trans porn, then cross-dressing, then forced feminization, kink. Forced feminization, by the way, as I explained before, is the broader category of which city falls under. So it's got all these different subgenres attached to it. And sometimes I would use the face app and masturbated looking at my female self. After orgasm, it was usually gone. This story I'm highlighting because it's so common. It is so, so common to see this in these forms, like, like to exactly to a T. <laughs> Sorry there, it's a pun unintended, but yeah, they'll start with pornography, start experimenting with cross-dressing, uh, and eventually get to a point where they'll think about transitioning. And it's usually rooted in, in this process, it's usually rooted in wanting to be treated like a girl in bed, so sexual. This was posted in a sissy forum, um, also repeating the pattern that I've just described of watching a lot of erotica online. But also this person says that they want an older guy to find a young guy who is 18 or in his 20s and slowly turn him into a sissy slut. So this is the BDSM element that's being described here where the dom, um, which by the way, also can be a woman sometimes in some cases, but the dom or older uh, person will force that man to become a woman to take hormones or feminize. Very common. Uh, anyone who thinks that I'm maybe putting too much emphasis on this pattern uh, can check for themselves. These sorts of patterns are also found in erotica dating back decades. So this isn't new either. There's also uh, these erotica on Amazon which I had mentioned in your previous presentation, but this one in particular I'm highlighting for the current theme about transitioning children. 
because this one's called Turning My Son Into a Pretty Little Girl. The epilogue that's described here says, should you make your son a girl too? Is this a picture of a mutilated little boy or is this a, a, girl? It's a girl? It's a girl. It's a girl. Yeah. So someone, yeah, this is like I, a stock image that they freaking use? I believe so. Oh I my mean, God. 99% of the time that I encounter these kinds of things, it's always a female. And yet it will be presented to you as though it were a male that had transitioned or something like this. Very, very few cases have I seen anything different from that. And when I have, they've been selfies basically. So. I mean. Wow. And then it says table of, so the preview on Amazon says the table of contents, chapter one, bullying, let him get a taste of his own medicine. Right. So the punishment aspect, the punishment and the humiliation then being forced onto the idea of a child projected onto a child. And Amazon censors critical content uh, for a time there. So Abigail Schreier's book, I think, was banned from Amazon or it might have been Target, but it I know was for definitely fact- Target. It was Target. Okay. Well, maybe also book- Amazon, but I remember the Target scandal for sure. Target and then Deborah So, I think. Deborah So's mm. book was banned from Amazon. And then uh, Ryan T. Anderson's book was banned for some time. I don't know if the ban is like currently still on or what, but I know that attempts have been made to censor like critical views, anything criticizing this ideology. And yet it's all too easy to find these self-published transgender erotica on there that include themes of things like pedophilia even, which their, their terms of service or their guidelines specifically state are not allowed. But things like, for example, age regression is a theme in this of like becoming an adolescent again. Uh, often you might see within the pornography the idea that taking female hormones allows a man to go through a female puberty. So they might call it like a second puberty. So there's some very fetishistic elements of adolescence and puberty involved also. Right. Meanwhile, um, in all of this, we have major publications such as even Scientific American saying that gender affirming healthcare should be a right for transgender youth. This is from that Scientific American article where it says that uh, puberty blockers are reversible. You see this over and over. I just saw another one today saying the exact same thing. And yet we know that that's not the case. Several countries are restricting the use of puberty blockers after research has found the damages or side effects to call into question the practice overall, including the Tavistock in England, where at least 35 doctors staff have resigned over concerns about transitioning children. A few of these doctors have even said that they felt they were participating in an ongoing experiment on children and eradicating homosexual youth. Gender medicine, this quote here says that it used to be once obscure 
and was typically reserved for middle-aged men wishing to live as women. Of course, we know that the statistical evidence and the history of this practice shows this was overwhelmingly a middle-aged male phenomenon now being extended to children. Um, these days, as Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage points out, the rise in teenage girls who are either struggling with some form of dysmorphia or wish to transition, perhaps based on peer pressure or homophobia, are increasing exponentially at an alarming rate. This is a story that was published by the Times in 2019, uh, where this girl was put on puberty blockers at 12 and had been on them at 16 at the time of this writing and said that she had imagined growing up and dating women when she got older. And very recently, Sweden's largest hospital ended the use of all puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for minors. Uh, this was a huge reversal of policies that had been recommended by the uh, WPATH standards mm -hmm. of care. Um, so they went against what's called the Dutch protocol, which when you look at this recommendation, the Dutch protocol, it even suggests, for example, girls as young as eight might be put on puberty blockers. And for some reason, they imagine puberty starting in girls younger than they do for boys. But anyway, um, as young as eight is truly astonishing. Uh, and so... Rightly so, Sweden has called it into question and banned these types of medications for children. So this is an article published in the Times in March of this year that was describing how the NHS of Glasgow was not transparent about the effects of puberty blockers on bone density and growth, where they had published a leaflet saying that all of the puberty blockers were fully reversible and parents complained uh, that the risks were not fully explained. And so the guidance has been updated to reflect that, which is a pattern that we're seeing um, in hospitals across the UK, which is wonderful. Uh, not yet happening in the US, unfortunately, as I mentioned before, the endless propaganda that's being put out now, especially for Pride Month, that puberty blockers are just life-saving, reversible and they're just ignoring the international I mean they're, they're they're just totally ignoring the rest of the world on this the, the international community the policies that are being implemented in other countries as if they weren't happening as if it didn't exist it's total madness yeah I recently saw a New York Times article where I, I just had to respond to the person who wrote it because I was just like, why didn't you mention any of this? I think the Sweden decision had just happened like the week before and, and the creepy kind of silence about, I mean, that was a huge decision, just totally ignored. But did you get a response? This, oh, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Block, <laughs> right? <laughs> no way, they never do. But within all of this is the, the bone density problem, which I, I often see this seeming to come as a surprise to people or it's presented 
Uh, initially in the medical literature, it was represented as though we had no idea what any of the adverse effects might be, right? Oh, we don't know, but we just know that it will save lives, right? Oh well, my God. I don't buy it for a second because well, as I'll explain, you know, here's this study about castration of two eunuchs in Ming Dynasty China. And this was published in 2009 about changes to the skeleton resulting from the loss of sex hormones. So the loss of the sex hormone hormones before puberty affects skeletal growth and development and may result in early osteoporosis. So this was known among the skeleton remains of eunuchs. Um, also, here we have two other examples of the same thing of what it's called the castrato uh, or castrati in Italy, who were eunuchs who were castrated for their singing voice to maintain a feminine singing voice. And again, here's two more examples of the same thing, their bone density being noted. Uh, interestingly, the castrati tended to be very tall and this was a result of bones elongating because they weren't fusing. So within, in puberty, the strength of the bones in part, I believe, comes from the fusing of the bones together and deprived that these men, they would grow up to be men who were quite tall, um, slightly misshapen skulls. Um, I mean, I think, I imagine possibly at the time that people might have saw that looked at them and thought maybe they weren't healthy, but I'm not, of course, no one can really know that for sure, but just looking at their skeletons. And this is from that research about the fusing of the bones, which hadn't happened. So uh, in this man's case, he had spinal fractures. Uh, normally when growth stops in late adolescence, the bone parts join together and fuse. Uh, and again, so the abnormal height was from the lack of that fusion happening due to castration. Uh, I found something of a literal example of a modern day castrato situation where this child, uh, I think maybe now might be an adult, but wrote this article about their transition. So Nicole Talbot, and he says that the greatest fear was the voice change that would come with puberty. And so as a result, his mother had him placed on puberty blockers and he, he wanted to be a singer, right? when he grew up, so he didn't want his voice to change, understandable, um, but he says here at the end that he's pursuing his dreams to always be a soprano. I mean, this is quite literally what the castrato were. And so this presents an obvious parallel, but it's not representative of the wide variety of reasons why children are placed on puberty blocking drugs. Other common reasons might include homophobia, whether from conservative religious household or environment or country, perhaps like in the case of Iran, possibly. Um, misogyny, uh, teen girls seeking to escape 
the normal development of their body due to fear of being objectified possibly, or Munchausen syndrome by proxy wherein the caretaker imagines a health issue among the, the person that they're caring for. So in this case, the parents might uh, create the condition themselves. Usually it's done for attention seeking behavior. And a little bit more about Lupron here, which was developed to treat prostate cancer in men, um, but failed to effectively do so. I mean, it's still used to this day for this purpose, but it has to be used in conjunction with other medications. So it was initially pushed through the FDA in, I think, 1985 for the purpose of treating terminally ill men but was expanded and marketed to women for a wide range of under-researched women's issues, uh, sometimes off-label. So some of the reasons why it's used for women is for surrogacy and IVF, um, despite the drug being known to be toxic to developing fetuses um, or as a puberty blocker. Again, those are both off-label uses. Uh, it has been approved for use in women for endometriosis and breast cancer, but I want to point out that Lupron is only given to men who are dangerous sex offenders or are dying of cancer. Okay, so here we have children being treated with the same drug that is only given to men to punish them or in the case that they're dying. I just really can't stress that enough. It's astonishing. And this is from the Lupron Depot website where it explicitly states that it should not be taken during pregnancy. Regardless, it is still used in surrogacy. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because we do know the side effects of this drug because this has been used on women. So the concept that we have no idea what these drugs do is totally bogus in my opinion. Um, it says that it should not be used if planning to become pregnant. Well, I mean, it's used to induced pregnancies. So, and that states thinning of your bones can occur and may not be reversible. On their website, it says it may not be reversible. And yet media outlets are saying it's completely reversible. I cannot understand what's going on here. Um, the FDA currently has over 25,000 adverse event reports for Lupron products, including more than 1500 deaths Reactions include suicidal thoughts, stroke, muscle atrophy, and debilitating bone and joint pain. So a drug that was developed for men is prescribed off-label for a myriad of women's issues, as well as to gender non-conforming children and is euphemistically rebranded as puberty blockers. Um, this article published by PBS a few years ago in 2017 detailed some stories from these women who were put on it for precocious puberty. And one of the quotes from the women said, it just feels like I'm being punished for basically being experimented on when I was a child. I'd hate for a child to be put on Lupron. Get to my age and go through the things I've been through. So this is from the article Lupron, what does it do to women's health, where women have said things like it puts their body into a state of menopause. That's actually why it's used in surrogacy and IVF. That's the desired outcome. 
And here's an article of a mother with her daughter who's 15 and been put on Lupron and is starting to go through menopause. And this is presented as though it's a good thing. Yes, the FDA, it is approved for endometriosis. However, that does not mean it's justified. I don't believe that means it's justified in its use. Oh. You know, I have seen so many women. Oh my God, it's just brutal. I had one former friend who, yeah, who, yeah, was going through menopause at age 23, 24 um, on this drug. It was brutal. It was brutal. And, and it, it, while it is the conventional treatment for endo, uh, it is not the only path. That's yeah, that's absolutely right. I'm a few years ago, I joined a group for Lupron survivors. Um, so my and this is a little bit personal as well, because um, that maybe it's why I get so emotional about it. But um, myself, I was, uh, I grew up with uh, tonic-clonic epilepsy and was recommended for a lobotomy when I was a child, which fortunately my parents pushed back on. Um, of course, nowadays we know that lobotomies are considered a form of malpractice or at least I hope so. I believe that's the prevailing opinion now. And so I had kind of experienced a little bit of um, medical experimentation as a child. And yeah, the, that's why I joined that Lupron group, you know, kind of out of sympathy for that. And the stories in there are just, just awful, really, really awful. I did want to bring up the, the aspect of what I see as the experimentation on women here, because so often in the discussion of puberty blockers, we forget that these are not new drugs and that they were pushed onto women first. Um, yep. And I say pushed on because I do consider it experimentation, especially given the dearth of research that we have on women's issues. We know this, we know that there hasn't been enough research. Um, it just kind of seems to me in my opinion, that this drug was not making very much money and they needed reasons to prescribe it for off-label purposes. I mean, actually, that's not even my opinion. In 2001, they were involved in the largest fraud lawsuit of that time. So the makers of this drug had settled for $875 million for fraud for actively bribing doctors to prescribe it. Wow. They were getting kickbacks. Um, I mean, it just makes sense that they would then find off-label purposes or reasons to prescribe right. it, you know, if they're getting thousands of dollars for each prescription. So, right. And then the profit margins that Planned Parenthood is now making, right? Their, their, their numbers, their profit margins have never been higher and they're serving fewer people through the gender affirming mm -hmm. therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, abortions are, are on the decline. Like abortion is not what like Planned Parenthood is doing now. I mean, yes, they offer abortions, but no, this is the, this is where the profit margins are at. They saw this as an opportunity and boy, are they capitalizing. And like you said, you know, like the Planned Parenthood has revealed as, you know, Abigail Schreier, Schreier details in her book, Irreversible Damage, that 90% of the people coming for wrong sex hormones are female. 
So yeah, it's this total weird, you know, I feel like we were just gaining traction with understanding the harms of hormonal contraceptive and the experimentation done on women. And they knew they've always known that hormonal contraceptive had negative side effects. It's not like they didn't know. They tested it on women in Puerto Rico and in Haiti, and they brought it here. And it's, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been doling out hormonal contraceptive for decades, saying that they're somehow, you know, improving the lives of women across the world. It's, it's bullshit. I, I don't buy it for one second. It's just, yeah, it's completely revolting that now these drugs that have killed and endangered the lives uh, of so many women are now a part of a male fetish and are not being questioned in, in the administration to an experimentation on, on children. Um, I spoke to a, a mother um, maybe like six, eight months ago uh, whose daughter was trans identified and uh, her biggest red flag is when her daughter, you know, started talking about Lupron because she had been sold Lupron um, in her youth for her health problems and had learned the dangers of Lupron through her own health journey. And when her daughter started, you know, talking about these puberty blockers that, you know, the, the light bulbs kind of went off and she was clued in. The experimentation on women and kids here all for what? For men to engage in sexual fantasies. I mean, you could say a similar thing too about plastic surgery. I mean, geez, like plastic surgery was initially developed to treat men returning from World War One who'd had disfigurement, facial disfigurement. And then it was experimented on women there's no record of how many women have died in plastic surgery and continue to die, by the way, to this day. And yet men are advocating for getting free breast implants, you know. Covered by taxpayers. I mean, dollar. I mean, it's insanity. It's a human. Yeah. Breast implants is now a fucking human right Oh, on that note, isn't it interesting, Isabella, don't you think that we're supposed to accept that a, a woman can have a penis, right? But on the other hand, women who identify as trans have to chop off their breasts or get a double mastectomy. Sorry to be so crude about it. Mm. Because if, if, if we were to accept that a man can have breasts, it would invalidate the plastic surgery procedures for these men. So for, to validate the men as women, the women must remove their breasts. Right. But the men don't have to don't remove have their to. dicks to be considered women. Right. In women's case, they're being asked to remove part of themselves. Whereas in men's case, they're not. If anything, they're, they're they're adding on, right? They're like building on. Ah, yes. I hear, I hear what you're saying. So the double standard is women are asked to chop things off, whereas men are just adding ornamental. Just, 
expanding what it means to be a woman. Ah, I see. I see. But yes, a woman who doesn't remove her breasts isn't seen as a man. Right. Do you know the stats behind how many trans identified men uh, castrate themselves? Do you know, do you have any numbers? Oh, um, actually, uh, I don't have the source for it, but I did see a stat. This was from like 2019, I think, where 90% of them retained their genitalia in the mm. US. What a I surprise. Number, the number is different according to country, of course, but yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the Posey Parker sticker. The trans women are men and most have a penis. It's just, it's so poignant. And by most, like in this case, it's okay. Over 90%. So there we go. Like nine, nine out of 10. My point here was about the fact that anyway, the side effects regarding bone density masks have been known for some time. And this is about a report submitted to the FDA by TAP. TAP is the Takeda Abbott Pharmaceuticals in 1998, uh, which acknowledged that its effects were not reversible. And the FDA didn't require any long-term research follow-up, which is one of the ways in which Uh, statistics are held from public consciousness, um, not requiring Mm long-term follow-ups, which again can be seen in similar industries uh, regarding this drug in particular. Yeah, same with the eggs. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Were you going to say the egg donor? Yeah, I was going to say similar, right? This happens with the egg donation, uh, egg selling, um, and IVF too. There isn't long-term follow-up. It's just once they get what they need, it's over. And so yeah. the clinics will say, oh, well, it's safe. Well, it's you, they, they we say that know. because they don't freaking know. Like they don't have any conclusive yeah. studies to say that it's not safe, but that doesn't mean it's safe. Right. It means they just we have to continue to do this because if we don't study it, then we don't have to, to stop doing it. Right. Right. Um, so in conclusion, my comments here about pornography, which I kind of touched on in the beginning. Um, There's an under-researched phenomenon of men and even teen boys consuming pornography and experiencing penis dysmorphia and confusion about their gender identities. This is well-documented in forums such as Reddit and FetLife, one of the leading online fetish communities. And there's another under-researched phenomenon of these men seeking to become the pornography as they advertise their feminized bodies on platforms such as OnlyFans. And I believe this is causing a feedback loop of womanhood being defined as pornography and girls seeking to escape womanhood via surgery and hormones. And here I've put that the demographics of males and females who identify as trans are wildly different as we discussed earlier. Um, about paraphilias. Women have been so objectified and commodified through pornography, sex trafficking, and surrogacy industries that the notion of womanhood itself as a product is taking hold in consumer cultures. The belief that womanhood can be achieved through the purchasing of surgeries and drugs is fundamentally a belief that womanhood is for sale. The intrinsic value of women comes not from her own self-worth, but from the resources men can extract from her flesh. Therefore, she is treated as a commodity and transgenderism can be seen as a form of commodity fetishism. 
regarding puberty blockers that the narrative of the transgender child is a fabrication based in homophobia, misogyny, and adult sexuality that is used to rationalize and norm normalize paraphilias. Children are being mentally and physically abused to this end. The drugs euphemistic euphemistically referred to as puberty blockers are castrating chemicals which forever alter a child's development and can lead to permanent sterilization. Effects of interfering with the puberty of boys have been known for decades, if not longer, and the effects of Lupron on women's bones and reproductive system has been known since at least the 90s. So just so I'm not misunderstood, the last thing I wanna say is that I want to stress that this is not the only narrative around what is called MTF transition or men and boys adopting what is referred to as a female identity. I'm just calling attention to the elements of pornography and paraphilias because it is quite likely that the sexual practices of adult men, along with the objectification of women, are both shaping policies that govern the health of children, as well as laws surrounding the very definition of women and our rights. Paraphilias of all sorts are normalized through gender ideology, including the castration fetish, but also autogynephilia, transvestic fetishism, voyeurism, which would be in the case of say, entering women's private spaces and arguably pedophilia due to the erosion of safeguarding boundaries. And as I mentioned earlier, the uh, strange fascination with adolescence and puberty. Um, though taboo, this topic ought to be addressed and researched further. Wow, thank you so much, Genevieve, for that thorough and illuminating and disturbing uh, presentation. You know, I, as you were going through your conclusions, I was thinking about what is the resistance that humans have to hearing about this kind of evil that's going on, uh, this abuse of women's bodies, the knowingness of the pharmaceutical companies to do such things, right? Where like the resistance and I, I'm often thinking about the resistance I, I um, encounter from women in wanting to confront the harms of transgenderism and trans ideology and the abuse of children through puberty blockers. I think that it comes from, and I, I'm curious what, what you would say in response to this, but it's got to be like a resistance to seeing the way that we have been abused by the medical system, how our bodies have been used as test subjects, how we have been experimented on, how we are performing in pornographic ways because we live in a patriarchal society. Like if we, if we start to look at Lupron, for example, you know, most of my friends know someone who has had endometriosis, who has had some kind of reproductive health uh, related issue. And then it begs the question, well, okay, well, how come my doctor never told me this? Or how come my mother didn't warn me about this? Or how come I was told my whole life that this was normal, that everyone goes on birth control and it's just the thing to do and that the side effects were uh, benign. And, you know, so it, I feel like there, you know, once you go there with the trans stuff, I think it, it forces the natural progression is to look at the pharmaceutical industry in all its, in all its uh, manifestations and um, influence in our lives. In my approach, um, at least I hope, 
has been to be very straightforward and factual based in what I'm saying. So um, for example, in, in this presentation I just gave with you, I gave like research data so that in that case, they can't argue with my opinion, you know, because so often it gets, re it gets reduced to feelings a lot of the times um, because I think you know, denial is a coping mechanism, right? Denial is something that people do to protect themselves. And so, especially women who are in denial of this, I think are deeply aware mm -hmm. of the danger, even if they won't allow themselves to admit it, yet probably feel the threat of saying no uh, or questioning, right? So I don't know, like I said, it's different for everybody. And sometimes people do respond to an emotional approach if it's done correctly. But for my part, um, I find that I get quite angry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I would rather not, you know, put someone off by being angry and really try to focus on facts so I don't, you know, sound uh, so they don't call you say. a crazy PMS. Yeah. So they take me serious. I mean, well, we do that a lot, don't we? Right. Like women are not really allowed to show anger even. Right. We're not taken seriously when we're angry. And so even though um, I have all of this anger about what's being done in so many aspects of this, maybe the aspect of the children really gets me um, emotional. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess in that sense, I've been kind of conditioned by patriarchy, too, because I do have so much anger about this, but I don't, I don't know. I think it, like I said, it depends on your friendship with that person. Can you, do you trust them deeply enough to have that conversation? Anyway, with this, I just hope to give people some ammunition, like some facts that they could use in a debate. So. Wow. There's so much that you covered. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I'm always coming back to like this question. Yeah, in terms of strategy, and I, you know, as you said, you know, on all levels, there's space for um, action and intervention and um, thought and dialogue. But I often wonder if this is really like an issue of information. Like, is it really an information war, or is this a paradigm war? Is this like a paradigm that that like that's the resistance? Like to come to terms with this means to like it's earth shattering. I find it's, you know, you don't unsee it once you see it. And, you know, in terms of, you know, it's the way that it's embedded in pornography. I mean, even that, like the resistance to heterosexual women who are in active partnerships with men facing the harms of pornography means to face their partner's porn addiction, mm. right? You can't just talk about hypnosis porn without talking about all the other kind of porn, you know, and who's watching it. Well, your friend's boyfriends are watching it. Your friend's husbands are watching it. Everybody is fucking watching it unless they've consciously, you know, the men who have done the work to um, deprogram from, from pornography. But yeah, I think there's, it's, this trans thing, I, I, I think that there's a reluctance to, to face it because what do we do then about male violence? 
like, cause that's the scary part. Okay. Well then now that we know that these men are convicted uh, and are going, you know, are sex offenders who are then being placed in women's prisons. Like, what do we do about that? What do we do about rape? Like, how do we fix rape? <laughs> you know, like these are the, like, this is where it like leads to like, there's nothing simple about this at all, you know, which is why I tried to make sure to highlight that point at the end, because nothing is simple here. I mean, if, if we, to question this is to fundamentally question society's impact on selfhood, mm-hmm. including media like pornography, right? If we conclude that pornography can have an impact on someone's mental health, physical health, or behavior, we have to then conclude that pornography can drive male violence, that it's not only pornography, that if media has this power over identity, then it can be everything in our lives shaping this. You know, I think a lot of people want to go through their lives thinking that they are the determiner of their own destiny because it makes them feel good and because it's easy. And that's not really how humans work. That's not how society works. Nothing exists in a vacuum. And you're absolutely right. Like this fundamentally poses the question of identity, selfhood, control over our lives, but also nature versus nurture and also technology versus nature and the medical industry. I mean, there's just so many factors involved here, but I think we got here because of denial from the beginning. We are here because we've been in denial for so long. And my hope, I do try to be hopeful as Grimmel is, I do try to think that we can somehow get out of this, but the only way that we can is to stop denying what's going on right in front of us. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit and visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.